Hello, my name's Reverend Dr. Sally Douglas and I'm the minister at Richmond Uniting Church. And you're welcome here. You're welcome if you're part of Richmond Uniting or if you connect with us occasionally. You're welcome if you are from another tradition or if this is the very first time you've explored participating in worship. And you're welcome here today if you're full of faith or if you're full of doubt. Wherever you are on your faith, life and doubt journey, please know you're welcome here. Participate as much or as little as you feel able to. Today is going to be a little bit different to other weeks in our online worship. Normally at Richmond Uniting Church, pre-coronavirus times, once a month on the fourth Sunday of the month, which would be this weekend, we'd gather for worship in the evening at 5pm and we'd push all the pews back, set these very long tables put together as one long table right down the centre of the church and worship over a simple meal. And while it might sound like quite a radical new thing to do, we were actually connecting with very ancient practices of Christian worship. The evidence indicates that in the early church, that at least in many places, this is what worship looked like. There weren't buildings to go to. People went to one person's home and they would worship together over a meal. So today in this online worship, I'm inviting us all to connect with this kind of worship. So there won't be a full audio uh, worship service, which is normally what we've been doing in these online times. Instead, I've written a simple table liturgy. It's still Easter, so it's the Easter season table liturgy. This is the seventh Sunday in Easter. And you're invited to share in this worship either alone or with others, whoever is in your household who would like to participate or alone is also so fine, over a meal. It could be any meal. It could even be afternoon tea or morning tea if you don't want to do this in the context of a full meal. For example, if you share a home with others who aren't practicing Christian faith and you don't want to eat separately from them in order to worship. So it's still the liturgy, which is on our website, richmond.unitingchurch.org.au. It still follows the same patterns of worship that are shared all around the world. There's gathering in prayers of thanks and adoration, there's stillness, there's readings, there's prayers for the earth and final blessing. You can print it out or you can read it from your device. And I'm really hoping that it can be meaningfully used whether you are worshipping alone or with others. So there are invitations to have people speak, pray in bold type and plain type. If you're worshipping alone, you might want to read the bold type more slowly as a way of signifying the difference and when there's an invitation to have discussion, you might want to have pencil and paper nearby so you can do some journaling or reflecting prayer drawing during that time as well. We're actually engaging with this as a family. Uh, each Sunday night we've been um, making homemade pizzas or doing some kind of meal together and then worshipping with this table liturgy throughout the Easter season. And it has been uh, striking in how rich an experience this can be and it really feels to me like such a strong connection to the early church but also to our Jewish brothers and sisters in the Shabbat meal, the the meal of preparation and um, gathering the family together and leaning into the stories of faith. So, I, Even though it might feel weird, I really encourage you to maybe try it out.
It's an incredibly rich thing to hear from those who you were able to worship with and eat with about the longings of their heart, about their wonderings about sacred text. It's not about it being perfect, you know, as though there is some definition of perfect worship. It's about seeking to connect with God in the middle of the messiness. So it feels to me a bit like an embodiment of the sacred ordinary, honouring the reality that God was with us in the mess, longing to be our source of nourishment. So you'll find some instructions for what you'll need for this worship online. Um, There's some invitations there as well. And there are also suggestions online for music. But in this audio recording, I'll read the Bible passages that are set down for this Sunday, just in case you don't have access to a Bible at home. And then I'll offer a reflection about one of them. But I encourage you, if you can, to not uh, listen to my reflection until you've had time in your table liturgy, alone or with others, to think about your own reactions to the readings first and what questions and what thoughts come up for you before then listening to my reflection. Because often if we pay attention to what strikes us in sacred text, whether it's because we love it or because we question it, uh, this is a point that you know, spirit can be calling us to attend to. So it's great to listen first to ourselves and our own reactions and then to lean into what others are saying, including me. As we gather, we honour the people of the Kulin Nation, the Wurundjeri people, where Richmond Uniting Church is located. Ancestors and elders, past and present and emerging, and elders from First Nations across this land. And we join our yearnings with God's yearnings for reconciliation, for truth and for justice. Like today to begin with the psalm, Psalm 68, and it begins in lament and longing, longing for there to be justice, especially for those who do wicked things. And there's this recalling of God's saving presence in the past. And at this time in our global village, as we witness some in political leadership, some with power in social media, spreading lies and putting profit before people, or popularity before people, I think this psalm can actually give voice to our longing for justice too. It's Psalm 68, verses 1 to 10, and then verses 32 to 35. Let God rise up. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be joyful. Let them exult before God. Let them be jubilant with joy. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides upon the clouds. His name is the Lord, be exalted before him. Father of orphans and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God gives the desolate a home to live in. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious live in a parched land. Oh God... When you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens poured down rain at the presence of God, the God of Sinai, at the presence of God, the God of Israel. 
Reign in abundance, O God. You showered abroad. You restored your heritage when it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord. O rider in the heavens, the ancient heavens, listen. He sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God in his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, and we're going to be really zooming in to this particular reading in our reflection today. It's towards the end of the letter. It's 1 Peter 4, verses 12 to 14, and then 1 Peter 5, 6 to 11. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you are sharing Christ's suffering, so that you may also be glad and shout for joy when his glory is revealed. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory, which is the Spirit of God, is resting on you. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Discipline yourselves, keep alert. Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around, looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Steadfast in your faith, for you know that your brothers and sisters in all the world are undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore support, strengthen and establish you. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Our Gospel reading in this seventh Sunday in Easter is again from John. And again, this reading in John's Gospel, following the pattern of the last several weeks, is located on the night when Jesus is betrayed. There's incredibly lengthy speech in John's Gospel on this night round the table. This is from John 17 verses 1 to 11. And it actually turns from being a speech here to Jesus praying. As readers, we get to overhear Jesus longing for followers to be guarded and protected and unified. This is all the more poignant if you remember the context is the night that Jesus is about to be portrayed. So Jesus knows this and Jesus likely knows that everyone who has been associated with him is also in significant danger, will be considered incredibly suspicious to the religious authorities and to the Roman authorities, to the authorities of empire. So within this context of danger and fear and threat, 
political threat, knowing what human violence is like. Jesus, who for us is the one from the beginning, as this reading says, on this night of betrayal stops to actually continue to care for those around him as he prays. So let's hear this from John 17. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you've given him, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I've made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me, I have given to them, and they have received them, and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf. I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you've given me so that they may be one as we are one these words of faith and jesus the word thanks be to god i'd like to invite us into a moment of prayer before we dive into these readings tender god please through alchemy of great spirit breathe life into these ancient words for us this day may the eyes of our hearts be opened so that we may see you and follow you more clearly through Jesus the radiant one we pray Amen Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. These are the words of the author of 1 Peter, and I think they could have been written for our day-to-day in our global village as we live through COVID-19. Do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you. Now, when we hear statements like this in the early letters of the New Testament, we gain insight into what's actually going on within these early Jesus communities. What's going on here? They are surprised by the fiery ordeals that they're enduring. This is not what these first Jesus communities were expecting. And now this author responds to their surprise by saying, no, don't. Maybe these first communities expected to be guarded from all evil because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Maybe they're expecting Jesus to return at any moment. Instead, the author of this letter, this text says, no, don't be surprised about this suffering. 
And then the author points them back to Jesus' suffering. Now, we don't know who wrote 1 Peter. It's a topic of ongoing debate in biblical circles. Some argue that the text could go back to Peter, the disciple of Jesus. Others dismiss this possibility. The debate will probably go on for decades and decades to come. But what we do know is that this text is early. It's from the first century. It's quickly honoured as a significant text in Christian circles. It's quoted in the second century by Polycarp, an early martyr. So what might this fiery ordeal be that the author is speaking about? Let's just try to get a bit of context on what's going on in this text of 1 Peter. What might it be? Well, it's commonly not thought to be official persecution by the Roman state. This is not happening yet. It's more the frustrating, really surprising difficulties, I suspect, for them of being targeted for ridicule and abuse and harassment by the wider community for being followers of Jesus. So by now, families might be starting to break up about this or certain shopkeepers are not um, welcoming you into your shop or religious leaders are targeting you. So it's not like an um, empire-driven persecution. This is more about abuse and ridicule within daily life. Because to be called a Christian becomes increasingly suspicious in this time. Remember, Greco-Roman context, heaps and heaps of gods in every town that you need to go and give sacrifices to in order to do your civic duty, in order to keep the gods happy. Like This is the cosmic worldview. And Christians refused to do this. And they didn't have exemption because it was seen as a new religion. And so they were increasingly seen as these dodgy pagans who couldn't be trusted and who actually might upset one of these quite unpredictable gods, these you know Greco-Roman gods, and then bring havoc on a town. So there was fear, suspicion, derision. This is what's surprising Jesus' community is that they're going through this suffering. This is not what they expect. But our author says, no, this is part of the deal. Yes, Jesus is raised and Jesus is with you, but look what suffering Jesus goes through. If we follow Jesus, we're also going to endure suffering. This is part of the call. It's not exactly the most comforting news. I just want to flag here a word of warning, though. I think we need to be careful at this point not to fall into a pattern of glorifying suffering or seeking out suffering or, you know, kind of being little martyrs, martyr heroes. I don't think that's what the author of 1 Peter's claiming, or, and I certainly don't think that's what the way of Jesus calls us into. But what this author is saying is that suffering is part of the deal. Being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free pass. Being a Christian is not about gaining some kind of magic ticket that lifts us out of suffering or pain. While it might have been strange for first Jesus communities to hear this news, you know, to get this letter, I think it can also be strange in our own context because in our culture... There is this assumption that we should avoid suffering at all costs. And in some Christian communities over the last several decades, there's been this distorted version of Christian faith, often called prosperity theology. The idea that if you're a Christian, you're somehow favored by God and you'll get blessings of wealth or status or good health, happy endings. Friends, this is an utter distortion of the way of Jesus. This is an utter distortion of Christianity. Jesus 
the one at the center of our faith enters our suffering and calls us to follow, even has this language of taking up cross, you know, standing in radical solidarity with those who suffer, even suffering ourselves for justice and truth, living in radical generosity with the poor and the sick and the vulnerable. This is really clear that money is not such a blessing at all. When Christianity gets turned into a prosperity theology, a notion that if you're Christian, you'll avoid suffering, it simply turns Christianity into a shonky insurance policy that clearly doesn't stack up with reality. So what are we to do with suffering? How do we understand this? In our global village, so many people are suffering right now. So many people are losing jobs, secure housing. They're losing loved ones. People are losing their own lives to COVID-19. What are we to do with suffering? Where is God in this for us? Just as the first Jesus communities asked of this author. Well, the first thing I think for us as well is not to be surprised. Don't be surprised by the ordeal. The second is that we have to critically evaluate what kind of image of God we have. For so many, even those who cling to Jesus, the image that we have of God is not actually informed by Jesus, but is instead shaped by superhero images. So we expect even implicitly without even realizing, we expect or have been told to expect that God will swoop in and take away suffering or guard us from it. That that's what God is like, swooping in like a superhero. And when this does not happen, when suffering comes crashing into our lives, well, people assume, well, there must be no God then. So what do we do with suffering if we're Christians? We have to look at Jesus. If we are Christians, Christ ones, we need to take our cues from Jesus and how Jesus embodies divine reality. For all the healing that Jesus does, Jesus is no superhero. Jesus does not go about alleviating all suffering and taking down all enemies. Yes, Jesus is healing and including when it comes to that really violent climax in the Jesus story, Jesus doesn't take down the empire. St. Paul talks about how foolish it looks that Jesus goes to the cross. It's so weak looking. And yet this is what Jesus does. Jesus does not respond to our violence and suffering with violence, but endures it. In Jesus, we see the God, one who does not hold power like we do, who endures the cross, who enters the pain, even to death. What might it mean for our images of God if we take this seriously? There's no get out of jail card for Jesus. And yet, the power and the love of the God one of the divine in Jesus cannot even be held down by this violence and death.
And this is the rub for us. I think when we're called to really, the really difficult path of enduring suffering, first we're called not to be surprised by it or to even flee it, but to first name it. To name our suffering. To stand in solidarity with those who suffer. Even at times to put our neck out in order to embody Jesus' compassion for all. Without surprise that suffering is here. It's part of our human reality. But as we do this, as we do this calm kind of naming we might not feel calm all the time but this naming of suffering instead of avoiding it or trying to explain it away or fix it just naming it we're also called to trust to lean in and to relax in the knowledge and the experience that God's risen life is present in the midst of this God's risen life that isn't like a superhero power but God's risen life that cannot be pinned down cannot be defeated by force or brutality or empire or death but God's risen life that is moving that we're called to lean into this reality God's gentle surprising energy that is at work in the cracks here and now God who isn't far from our pain but who is in solidarity with the pain of the world from the inside in Jesus and God who is ceaselessly working to birth unexpected risen life, new possibilities, deeper healing, liberating creativity and compassion. The kingdom of God, the risen life of God that we're called to pray for and we're called to join in with. Risen life that doesn't take away suffering, the truth that suffering is part of life, but that can slowly, by God's good grace, transform the suffering. I think the conclusion of this text of 1 Peter that we heard is very beautiful in its intimate claims about where God is in suffering. So first this author saying, don't be surprised by it. And then the author states, cast all your anxieties God because God cares for you where is God in suffering God is intimately close to us longing for us to cast our anxieties upon God and be cared for imagine if we took this seriously cast all your anxieties on God because God cares for you You don't have to just move on from suffering. You don't have to get over it or deny it or explain it. Here we are called just to be honest with God. God can handle our worries, our anxiousness in these difficult times. We don't have to get over ourselves or sort ourselves out before we can approach God. Instead, here we're invited to be real with God, to allow God to scoop us up and hold us close so that we can cry a river if we need to. And this is the promise, the promise at the end of this call. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, 
support, strengthen and establish you. What a promise. Not a flaky promise about and everything will be sorted out and you will get a happy ending and all the wealth and health. No, 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 no. Here is a promise about God working within the midst of the suffering, strengthening and restoring and establishing. So friends, this week I encourage us all to take up the challenge of 1 Peter and dare to get real with God, the God who comes to us in Jesus Christ in humility and compassion and solidarity utterly gracious humble healing surprising God who comes to us in Jesus who is as close as our breathing and who longs for us to be honest to cast our anxieties upon God upon blessed trinity so that we can get a little more free from fear so that we can discover the presence of God within the fiery ordeal and draw our strength from this one for each and every day so that by grace we can join in more and more with what God's already doing the surprising life of the unfolding gentle kingdom the risen life of God within and among us Amen there are some wondering questions that you might want to take with you during this worship or also into your week the first is that really hard one where is God in suffering for you you might want to interact with what I've offered here and and what you've been brought up to believe or what you've assumed in the past wrestle with the two if they're different second question is what might it mean for your understandings of God to reflect on how God enters our suffering in Jesus. So it's not just about alleviating it, but it enters our suffering in Jesus and births risen life from this place. So how might your images of God be changed by this? And the third question, how might you cast all your anxiety onto God, knowing that God cares for you? How might you actually take this up as a practice this week? The questions are on the website if you want to go back to them. There's also some music suggestions and I think it would be fair to say that they'd probably be considered twee in many circles. But I've intentionally included them because what they these old songs slash hymns do is invite us into that intimacy of casting our anxieties onto God. So the first is that old song what a friend we have in Jesus and the, the link to the version is by Willie Nelson and the second song suggestion is in the garden and it's by a pretty amazing band called the welcome wagon and it's got this beautiful refrain they've added into their version don't go it alone don't go it alone and I think that's such a beautiful invocation of what the author of one Peter is saying as well don't go it alone cast all your anxieties onto God I'd like to close with a blessing and it's the blessing that is part of the blessing for the table liturgy. For you, for all. May blessed Trinity be with us all. May the source of all be upholding you. 
May radiant Christ be illuminating you. May Spirit Holy be guiding you. Every step that you take in this stormy world. In the name of Christ. Amen.